Let me encourage you to take your Bible and go along with me to Jonah chapter 1 again this evening. We left off right at the end of chapter 1 and we'll pick up there and work our way into chapter 2 this evening. Life is full of all kinds of cost-benefit analysis. Uh, Certainly you do that with your finances. You go to make a purchase, a decision, and you think, is it worth what I'm about to pay for it? Uh, do I think that it's going to help life or meet a need? Is the price right? Is, is the time right? And so you begin to make this cost-benefit analysis. You probably do that with investments and things as well. And certainly the terminology itself comes from the financial realm. And yet we also do the same with our time to go, hey, if I put my time here, if I schedule that, then I'm going to have to give up some other things. So am I okay carving out that time in my schedule for that activity or for that relationship or whatever it might be? Um, Say, looking ahead to Thanksgiving, we even do it with food, right? You make a decision come Thursday. Is it worth having fourths on dessert or not? And you have to make a decision as to whether you want to pay the penalty and feel sick for the next few hours or whether or not you're going to go ahead and indulge. Um, uh, Some of those choices you make very consciously, very thoughtfully. You work through them, you study it out, you research the options, you consider uh, what happens if you give your time there or if you give your finances there. Um, what's, What's going to be the result? On the other hand, there are times where it's almost unconscious, it's almost thoughtless on our part. I think most of us know what it's like to buy something and quickly experience buyer's remorse. You go, ooh, that really didn't change my life the way the ad said it would, the way that I thought it would. Um, Or on the other hand, to go, you know what? I shouldn't have had fourths on dessert, and now I'm wishing I hadn't, but I didn't really think it through. You know, one of the areas that I'm not sure we really consciously do cost-benefit analysis on is when it comes to our sin. And yet I would remind us that often as we begin to work through whatever issue it might be related to a decision that we've made, the Lord has a way, as we've talked about before even in the series, of peeling back our fingers to show what's being hidden in our hand. It can happen with an area of obedience where we disobey and consequences mount. The Lord in his sovereign judgment begins to put the pressure there where over time you're like, okay, I get it. I should have. I didn't. I will. Uh, Certainly the same happens as well with honesty, not just obedience, but honesty, uh, where we cover up what really we should confess and say, all right, Lord, it's true. I need to say the truth. I need to speak the truth. I need to acknowledge the truth. As we continue to work our way through Jonah, it really becomes clear That when it comes to our sin, the right answer needs to be the immediate answer, needs to be, Lord, that was wrong, I will obey. We're watching the consequences, if you will, the merciful judgment of God pile up in the text of Jonah. If you remember back with me in week one, we looked at Jonah's sinful rebellion. We're very clearly there in Jonah 1, 1 through 3. God gives a command to Jonah in verses 1 and 2 where God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, 
cry out against it. Their wickedness has come up before me. And yet verse 3 paints that incredibly strong contrast. But Jonah, he gets up, he flees from the presence of the Lord. He, instead of going to Nineveh, is going to board this ship to go the opposite direction. So we saw God's command in Jonah's choice there that first week in God's or Jonah's sinful rebellion. Last week, though, we came to verse 4 in chapter 1 and saw God's sovereign response. What does he do? God said, but Jonah did, and then in verse 4, but God does. He creates this storm on the sea. I want to quickly survey for you again, remind you again of four themes that we touched on there in looking at God's sovereign response. Really, three of those themes show up again tonight. We're going to title them differently But I think you do well as we keep making our way through the book of Jonah to see these things about God on display in the entire book. We said first, God's sovereign response was driven by his powerful ability. He causes this storm to happen. It's clear as you work your way through the chapter that he is the one who's done it. The pagan soldiers recognize it. And yet tonight, we'll be reminded in an incredibly unique way that God and his sovereignty has incredibly powerful ability. Secondly, we talked about the fact that God's sovereign response is also driven by a just sovereignty. Yes, he's ruler, and as ruler, he doesn't overlook wrongs. He deals with them justly. He's not going to turn a blind eye to Jonah's sin here in the text, and it would be a very good reminder for us that while God is gracious, he is forgiving, he is merciful, he is also just when it comes to our sin as well. Sin is dealt with. The ones that the Lord loves, he does chasten, as we read here in Hebrews chapter 12. And so God's sovereign response is driven by his powerful ability, it's driven by his just sovereignty, and then third, wonderfully, thankfully, it's driven by relentless mercy. It's driven by relentless mercy. If this was a human relationship taking place in our lives where we said, do this, and the person said no, and we said, well, here's the results of your actions, and they still said no, and we said, here's the results of your actions, there would come a point where like, I'm done. Like, it's not worth it. Why do we keep having this conversation if you're never going to listen to what I'm saying? If you're never going to follow through? And yet, God doesn't let Jonah go at all. It becomes even more clear tonight. And then fourth, we were reminded ourselves that God's sovereign response is driven by divine glory. He will be exalted. And where we left off last week, Jonah's not ready to exalt God. He's not. He was told to pray, and he remained silent. He wouldn't pray. He would say in word, I fear the Lord. I fear Jehovah. And yet in action, it's not there. But amazingly, by the end of chapter 1, where we left off in verse 16, there are pagan sailors who have forsaken the false gods they prayed to earlier, and they've worshipped and sacrificed to Jehovah. God's sovereign response has brought those sailors to worship him. Tonight, we're going to pick up with a um, forethought. We looked at Jonah's sinful rebellion, God's sovereign response, Jonah's stubborn reaction, 
And tonight we want to look at God's sovereign rescue. God's sovereign rescue as we come to verse 17. In spite of the fact that Jonah's willing to be thrown overboard, that's his solution here. He's tried sleep, it didn't work. He's tried silence while others are praying. Like, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to turn to God, even though I'm a prophet, even though I serve him. I'm not going there. So finally, his solution is throw me overboard. They do. And yet in that, God sovereignly rescues him. Even we'll get there in a few moments as we read Jonah's words, as he finally prays and talks to God in chapter 2. In those words, we get the sense that Jonah has begun to regret his choice to be thrown overboard. Because, you know, sin has a way of doing that. We think, well, you know what, this has to be, I'm going to stick to my guns. I, I just can't do what's right. Sin seems worth it, or obedience seems not worth it, and we stick to it until God finally brings us around to go, no, actually, you'd better obey. And Jonah reaches that place in chapter 2. But as we come to God's sovereign rescue, notice the unique amazing manner that he does it there in Jonah 1 verse 17. Not a surprise to anybody in the room. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It's one of those things I don't know that we can do. Um, The words, the story, if you will, are so familiar but I almost ask you for a moment to try to push that familiarity aside and think about how shocking this is. If you were to do a word study here, one of the words that ought to catch our attention is prepared. It means to count, to go through and to begin to count, and then to apportion, right? One and I the other night were talking about Christmas gifts. It's like hard to believe we're at that time. It seems still too far away. I almost want to put a moratorium and say, you don't talk about that till after Thanksgiving, okay? But when it comes around to Christmas, you start to look at your budget and your finances and you mark, earmark certain dollars and go, well, this is for Christmas. This is for that purpose. Here we are being told that God had taken an accounting and apportioned that with the idea, the sense being, here's what's best, I've marked this out as best for Jonah. Here's a fish to swallow him. In other words, the text is pointing us to the authority and the intentionality of God's action here. He has taken what is exactly right to rescue and also help Jonah turn from his sin. He's chosen what's needed. The the fish will be both corrective, we can say, in judgment, and instructive for Jonah as well. It's God's means of teaching and delivering. Again, consider the nature of our God. Um, We see this through the minor prophets as a whole, Jonah being one of them. But God's people turn from him. And what does he do? He sends them into captivity. He sends individuals to come and to attack, to take away part of them, to first see all of Israel go into captivity, and then through multiple invasions, three particularly, see Judah go into captivity gradually. Consider your ways, consider your ways, consider your ways, the prophets will call out to try to get them to turn from their sin. Because God loves his people. 
from a New Testament perspective, I've already referenced it, but again, it's the thought of Hebrews chapter 12, that the one that the Lord loves, he does chasten. He has an incredible ability in his omniscience, in his sovereignty to say, here's what's right in your life, to grab your attention, to see the devastation and destruction of your sin, and to try to get you to turn back to him. You know, we get hung up on the details here, like what would that have been like? And certainly it's worth thinking through, but don't miss the fact that verse 17 tells us so clearly, God looked at, here's the options. This is the best move. This is what's needed in Jonah's life. And he sends this fish. Here, the disciplinary consequence was also God's means of deliverance. What an amazing thought to go, this disciplinary consequence is God's means of deliverance. We could say it this way, the suffering for Jonah was part of God's salvation. And so again, I'd remind you of the themes, I'll state them differently, I'll give you three of them. One, you have to look and see God's power on display. First, he sent a storm, and as if that wasn't enough, he sends a fish to go to swallow Jonah keeping Jonah alive inside the fish for three days and three nights. It's re- that God's power is revealed in the text here again in his name. We've touched that many times, so I won't belabor it here. It is Jehovah who has prepared this great fish. But it's certainly not just revealed in its name. It's demonstrated in his action. Beyond God's power, consider secondly God's persistence. Consider God's persistence. For whatever reasons, my mind works in silly ways sometimes. As I was thinking about this this week, my mind went back to my childhood. We used to play a game called Mercy. Probably a bad idea. I probably shouldn't introduce too many in here into that game. But you, you guys, the adults at least, know how this works. You grab hands, okay? And you begin to like squeeze knuckles and bend fingers and turn until someone says, Mercy, like stop, stop. Okay, I guess that's a dumb boys game. Okay. It's like, you know what? Who's going to hang on? Who's not going to say mercy? My fingers are killing me, but who's not going to say mercy? It came to my mind because in our foolishness, sometimes we are persistent in our sin. God's convicted us. He sent consequences up for it, and yet we hang on. Do you see God's persistence in here? Sending the storm? To the point where these experienced sailors chucking stuff overboard, praying to their gods, what are we going to do? Desperate to the point they cast a man overboard. You'd think Jonah would get it. He didn't. So God sends this fish. God's persistence is on display. He's not going to let Jonah go. We don't play mercy, if you will, with God. Thankfully, he's wonderfully merciful to us. Beyond God's power and God's persistence, finally, again, we have to know God's providence. He's working all things according to his plan. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over the affairs of our lives. But as he works that plan, he does it for his goodness towards us. He does it in a way that is best with love and care for each one. That's true for Jonah here as God sustains his life. He loves Jonah. And yet what's what's amazing here is The Israelites and the Ninevites are enemies. 
God's people versus the Assyrian Empire. They're enemies for each other. And yet in Jonah, God is doing what is best for Jonah. He's loving him. And yet when we get to chapter 3, God is also doing what's best for Nineveh and he's loving them. For us, it's almost incomprehensible to try to balance that because of our limited ability. But God's providence is on display nonetheless. Having looked at God's sovereign rescue of Jonah, we get to a good part in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah's submissive return. Jonah's submissive return. You look there at the beginning of verse 1. Then, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. On the one hand, this should be expected. The prophet is now praying. But it took Jonah being put in an impossibly bad situation to get him there. We listened in chapter 1 as the pagans pray and the prophet sleeps. We listened when Jonah was told to pray, and he remains silent. We listened to the the pagans turn around and praise Jehovah and offer sacrifices and say they're going to perform their vows. And yet Jonah still won't turn to his God. Now, having been tossed into the stormy sea, having been swallowed by a great fish, Jonah's been brought to a place where he will submit turn back to God and talk to him. So we look at Jonah's submissive return. Notice first, it's evidenced in a cry for merciful deliverance. Verses 2 through 9 are poetic in nature. Okay, so a little bit different in the figurative speech, the imagery that's used. It appears that as you work your way through verses 2 through 9, verses 2 through 7 point to a prayer that happens while he's in the water, whereas verses 8 and 9 point to a prayer that's occurring while he's in the fish as well. As we look at verses 2 through 7, notice again that his submissive return is evidenced in a cry for merciful deliverance. As you look at verse 2, notice first Jonah recognized that God heard his cry. God heard his cry. Jonah recognized it. He says there at the beginning of the verse, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. His circumstances have brought him to the point of prayer because of how bad he's suffering. He's willing to turn back to God, and God mercifully hears Jonah. You know, again, I would just remind us very, very simply it shouldn't take such severe consequences in our lives to wake up and go, you know what, Lord? I need to confess my sin. I need to turn back to you. I need to repent, seek forgiveness from you. We do have a Lord who is ready to forgive, who is faithful and just in doing so, who is willing to pardon our iniquities. We were reminded even of Psalm 103 this morning and what was sung. To say he removes our transgressions from us because of his mercy. Jonah here turns back to the Lord and the wonderful reality is God heard him. God heard him. You know, I've seen it talking to others. I hope that you have not experienced it, but it would be naive to suppose that people in this room haven't. Where human relationship is so damaged, it's like I can't talk to him anymore. Well, I try, I'd love to, but the, the relationship is so broken, it just doesn't work. I can't. 
thankfully God doesn't operate that way. He's not keeping score here with Jonah going, Jonah, no, I gave you your chances. I'm going to hold you over a barrel now, Jonah. No, God heard Jonah. Jonah recognized that God heard his cry. God is that good. He didn't give up on him. Furthermore, as Jonah talks there in verse 2, he notes that God heard him from the realm of the dead. He says, he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I. Thou heardest my voice. The word has been translated there, hell, is the familiar Hebrew word, sheol. It's that word that speaks of the grave, the pit, often used with reference to the wicked. To say, the wicked have gone to their grave. They're, in other words, awaiting judgment. Which is why sometimes some translations handle it as the word hell. But in essence, he's gone to the realm of the dead, not in the sense of like some kind of middle afterlife, but he's gone to the grave. Judgment is awaiting. He's like, Lord, I was almost there. And it was there that I called out to you as I sunk down in the water and you heard my cry. So Jonah is able to recognize as he cries out for merciful deliverance that God heard him. But additionally, Jonah recognizes what we've touched multiple times now. He recognizes, secondly, that God had control over his circumstances. Verse 3, thou hast cast me into the deep in the midst of the sea. The floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Earlier in chapter 1, Jonah has recognized God as the God of heaven, the God of earth, the one who has control of the storm. And now as Jonah turns back to God, he notes that God has been sovereign in his suffering. He notes that God has been sovereign, we might say, in his chastisement to turn him back to himself. And so Jonah is able to say, God, I, I know you were the one at work in all of these details. And yet Jonah doesn't resent God for that. He's turning to him as the one who's able to deliver. Third, Jonah reached the end of himself. He returns to Jehovah as we look at verse 4 and even then again later at verse 7. When you come to verse 4, he says, Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Remember, he's sunk down. He said, all the waves are crashing over me. I cried, you heard me, but I, I had sunk out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. It's interesting language. Again, the temple being that place of God's presence, it was a visual, physical, geographical reminder for God's people. Here's where God dwells. Even as they think about the Ark of the Covenant, it's like, Lord, I'm going to look back to that place. Again, we don't have to go to a physical place today. Uh, we have the wonderful privilege to say that God's spirit indwells every believer. But for Jonah, as part of God's chosen people, he's going to say, God, I, I, I'm sunk down. I'm out of your sight. Now, again, we've touched this a couple times. Theologically, we understand no one escapes God's sight. But Jonah realizes he's wandered far from God. But I will look back to the place of your presence. That is the place that Jonah was to serve, but he's fled the place of service. He's fled the presence of the Lord. And yet, even though his circumstances haven't changed, he's sunk down, he's going to return to God. So he prays there in verse 7, when my soul fainted within me. This is kind of after the story. We'll get the story in verses 5 and 6 in a moment. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. I remembered Jehovah. My prayer came in unto thee, into thy holy temple. 
Jonah recognized, God's heard my cry. I, I called out to him. He heard me in his temple, in his dwelling place. And as a result, God has rescued Jonah. In verse 4, he said, I'll, I'll look to his temple. I'll, I'll call out to him. In verse 7, he says, you did. But verse 5 and 6 points to how God rescued Jonah. Again, he paints the picture here of what it was like as he was in the water. The waters compassed me about, even to my, the soul. The depths closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped around my head, about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet, hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Jonah paints quite the picture of his drowning in verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. As he sinks down in the water with the weeds wrapping around his head, the pressure mounting. And yet he says that God has brought up his life from corruption. How did God do that? Verse 17 of chapter 1. Not what we would have expected. Through a great fish, God has rescued Jonah submissively returned to God. It's evidenced by his cry for merciful deliverance in verses 2 through 7. But secondly, as we come to verse 8 and 9, it's evidenced in a commitment to spiritual devotion as well. It's evidenced in a commitment to spiritual devotion. You look with me at chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Some here are skeptical, like, why is Jonah all of a sudden talking about uh, empty idols, worthless, lying vanities there? Uh, why is he claiming devotion to God? I mean, look at where he is in, uh, at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4. I would say all we can do is take these words from Jonah at face value to recognize even in his weakness, our weakness, I think you've probably been there before. It's like, Lord, I, I am going to do what's right. I am going to live completely for you. Lord, I am going to seek to share the gospel. Lord, I, I am going to seek to do these things. And then you see your weakness on display, and it's like, Lord, I failed again. Lord, I've got to come back to you again. It seems to be what's taking place here in this little book of Jonah. As Jonah manifests an incredible commitment to spiritual devotion in verses 8 and 9. We could summarize verse 8 this way, use it as though Jonah's speaking, I will live differently than the pagan culture. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. We could say it this way, false gods are no help in time of trouble. False gods are no help in time of trouble. When you need deliverance, they can't help. We saw this illustrated in chapter 1, but certainly we see this over and over and over again in life, in our lives, sadly, but at times the lives of people around us, where it's like, you know what, maybe I can go to the internet and get an answer. Maybe I can go to a substance and get relief. Maybe I can go to a relationship and find some happiness. And maybe, and maybe, and maybe, and maybe, all these fillers come up. But they don't meet our deepest need in our relationship with God. Jonah's able to look and say, you know, the people who pursue idols, they pursue making life about worshiping things that aren't real, forsake their own mercy. They leave this place of a committed devotion. That, that word mercy is the Hebrew word hesed. Again, it speaks of a, a faithful love, a committed love, an, an undeserved, merciful love. 
like they've left that. Certainly those idols don't have it for them. They're empty, they're worthless, they're nothing. But on top of that, God who does offer that and give it, they have moved away from. Hasn't been too long. Was it this morning? It was this morning or yesterday. They used to run together, and if you're on the church's Bible reading, you read Psalm 136, right? End of every stanza, his mercy, same word there, endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever. 22 verses in Psalm 136. Jonah here saying, the people who live for, they give credence to, these empty, worthless idols have left that steadfast love. You leave God, you leave that mercy. Why would you leave it? Secondly, as we look at Jonah's commitment to spiritual devotion, he's not only saying, I'll live differently than the pagan culture, I will live faithfully and worshipfully in my personal commitments. I will live faithfully and worshipfully in my personal commitments. He says in verse 9, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation comes from Jehovah. He says, I, I'm going to praise him with my gratitude. Right? Again, we walk through this time of year where we try to be intentional with our gratitude. Maybe you're doing great with that. Maybe you're struggling with that. But I could dare say for pretty much all of us, don't mean it to anybody personally, we can do a better job with gratitude for the Lord's goodness in our lives. You walk through a year like this and you have all kinds of reason to complain without stopping to go, you know what, actually, I need to give thanks. I need to express gratitude for what the Lord is teaching me, for what the Lord has done for me. Jonah's been through incredibly difficult things as God in his mercy is turning Jonah back to himself and yet he's going to say, as I worship, as I sacrifice, I will do this with the voice of thanksgiving. I'm going to keep the commitments that I've made. I'm going to point to God, to Jehovah, as the one who is Savior. We walk away from the text this evening. I want to share a couple thoughts of application that I've shared with you before walking through this quite some time ago. The first, very simply, is to remind you that we can and should pray and talk to God. Jonah here prays from the belly of a fish. He has prayed while drowning in the water overcome by his circumstances. But we, should do, we would do well to take note that we can also pray at any time, in any location, with any circumstance. We can also pray and really should pray. I don't know why we get hung up in the deception of sin in this regard, but we can and should pray in the midst of personal failure. You ever been there where your mind is kind of tied up? And you're like, I can't go back. I, and it's almost like reviewing God in human terms. Like, well, if I go talk to that person in light of what I last did to them, they're not going to be happy with me, and I can't go to them. You realize God is not going to beat you over the head for your sin. He wants you to come back. Jonah here comes back to God and he's able to say, God heard me. And while we won't get there tonight, God does deliver and God does use him. And Jonah's still going to turn back on God and God's still going to be patient with him. 
So we can and should pray in any location, at any time, in any circumstance, even in spite of personal failure. And as we pray, we should be looking to God as the source for our answer, the source for our hope. Jonah has no other options at this point. Right? He jumped overboard. It was thrown overboard at his own instruction. And God says, I'm not letting you go. He's had the storm. He's had the fish. So Jonah turns to God. He's the only answer, the only source of hope. After reminding us that we can and should pray, secondly, just want to remind you that God is to be praised. God is to be praised. One of the things I love about these smaller Old Testament narrative kind of books, we studied through Ruth quite some time ago. We're studying through Jonah. As you walk through these and you see God's sovereignty on display, you see God's mercy on display, you see God's inescapable love on display. Jonah doesn't deserve salvation. He doesn't deserve deliverance here, and yet God will give it because God is that good. You know, the deliverance that God's going to give here is not exactly what we would have expected. It's probably not what we would desire. You know, I don't think Jonah's in the water saying, Lord, I regret this. Would you please send a fish to swallow me? If you could give me a couple nights, I'd be good. But God, in his sovereign wisdom, says, this is what's right. Remember, we talked about it there. God prepared. He counted and apportioned for Jonah. Here's what Jonah needs. And now as we read through chapter 2, we see Jonah having turned back to God. It's a simple reminder for us tonight as we see things change in this little book to say we can and should pray, and God deserves our praise because we're going to get to chapter 3, and whereas chapter 1 said, and the word of the Lord came, go, arise, cry, we're going to get to chapter 3, the word of the Lord is going to come, and Jonah goes. Because in chapter 2, after all the consequences, after the chastisement, his perspective has changed. We can pray, we can talk to God in spite of personal failure at any time. And God deserves our praise. Let's pray. Father, again, we recognize our sinfulness. The times when we do fail. Lord, I don't know where each one is here tonight. I have to imagine there are individuals here walking with you, striving to please you, seeking to grow by your grace. But Lord, I also know that we at times really struggle with sin. We allow it to deceive us. We allow it to dominate us. We don't want to obey. We don't want to be grown or stretched in new ways. Lord, I pray for those people that are there right now that the accounts that we've looked at in Jonah's life would be a challenge and an encouragement to them to help them turn from their disobedience, to yield to you, to be willing to be used by you. Lord, I pray for each of us that we would be quick to pray, quick to talk to you, and also to praise you for how you see fit to work. Lord, again, we're thankful that you don't ever give up on us. You're sovereign and wise in all the events of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray.